Welcome back to the MicroConf Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Walling. This is a MicroConf Refresh episode where we look at an amazing talk given by Asia Arangio on identifying your best growth opportunities. In this talk, Asia walks through some of the key areas where you can find your best opportunities for growth. And she gave this talk at three events in September. We had MicroConf Local Portland, Boston, and Austin. And the talk received rave reviews. People were getting a ton of value out of it. And Asia is, you know, one of the best in terms of early stage SaaS marketing and strategy. And so we were very thankful that she was able to make those three events. And now you get to hear it as well. As a reminder, all these talks are available on YouTube, youtube.com slash microconf. You can subscribe there. If you aren't already, if you want to see the visuals for these talks, you can head there to see the slides and see what the event was all about. Before we dive into that, this is your last chance to get tickets for MicroConf Remote at microconfremote.com. As a reminder, this is a three-day virtual event. We do 90 minutes a day just to keep you from having five hours sitting in front of, you know, it's not Zoom, but a, a video platform. And MicroConf Remote 3.0 is the no-code guide for B2B SaaS founders, where we're going to look at the best ways you can incorporate no-code across your stack from marketing to sales to SEO automation and more. We're going to dive deep into some of the nuts and bolts of building and automating processes and just what a B2B SaaS founder should know. So I hope you join us there, microconfremote.com. And with that, let's dive into the talk from Asia Arangio. A really quick background about me. So before I started Demand Maven, I was the head of marketing at a VC-funded startup. And before that, I was demand generation, head of demand gen at another VC-funded startup. Both very high growth, both incredibly high stress. There's a joke that I tell a lot that the first marketer in a startup is usually the very, very first therapist. You hear all of the growth problems. You do your absolute best to provide solutions. <laughs> Whether or not the team can see it themselves, debatable. The other thing about me to know, yes, I run Demand Maven. I was also previously on the board of Moz, which was successfully acquired I believe in June of this year, and that was really awesome. My first official successful acquisition, I get to say that. But what we're going to be talking about today is actually exactly the work that I do with SaaS companies all over the world of all different shapes and sizes. Doesn't matter if they are B2B, if they're B2C, if they have freemium, free trial, a demo model, a sales team, if they're MVP stage or growth stage or traction stage, doesn't matter. This process that I'm going to go through today, you can actually use in your own organizations. If you don't have a product yet, that's totally okay. You can actually use this process to identify your market opportunity. If you are much more mature, you've got thousands of customers, maybe hundreds or maybe even just 10, you can use this to find your absolute best next growth opportunity. So we're just going to jump right in. I'm going to start with a story, a very real story of a very real client last year that I took on right around February to March 2020. You can guess what huge, crucial event happened last year around this time. Uh, but I was working with a vacation rental software company. So in the vacation rental software space, think of uh, you want to book uh, an Airbnb or you want to book a really cute cabin in the mountains. Nine times out of 10, you're probably gonna go through a channel like Airbnb or VRBO. Another really good chance is that company is actually uh, it's actually like a vacation rental company. So this particular vacation rental software company works with vacation rental organizations all over the world, helping these companies put their properties and listings and distribute them on Airbnb, VRBO, places like that. So that's the context of this. We're in the 
We're in the vacation rental, short-term rental, serviced accommodation space. And I took on this client right around this time last year, and then the pandemonium happened, the chaos. And all travel stopped for quite some time. I want to say it was about like four to five months before we saw travel resume again in certain parts of the world. And when travel stopped, vacation rental companies also around the world, many of them sadly went under. Many of them dissolved. It was, uh, unless, this, unless you had runway, you probably didn't survive. Because of all that was happening, this client that I took on, almost overnight, ungodly churn. I haven't seen churn this bad since the early days. In the early days, when you've got three customers, you lose one, you've got, oh crap, 30% churn or whatever it is. But this was like, we had hundreds of customers, and it was like 60 to 80% churn. Huge. Absolutely terrifying. Can you imagine that feeling? <laughs> Just my entire business gone. And I remember at the time, at first I was like, oh man, we're gonna, go, we're gonna do our typical project, we're gonna do our typical work, and then all this churn happens, and we have this, oh my god, where are, we gonna, are we gonna survive this? And then suddenly my very simple project turned into not just a how do we grow, but now how do we survive? And how do we specifically go from surviving to thriving? Is that even possible? Do we have a chance? We were very fortunate in that this particular client uh, had the runway to survive for the next, I would say, six to eight months. So they had enough runway to basically say, okay, if we can figure out something, we'll be okay. However, we've really got to figure out something. Otherwise, we'll have an even bigger problem on our hands. The process that we went through is actually the process that I'm going to take you through. And I'm very pleased to say that going through this process, in addition to some other growth challenges that this company overcame. By the end of the year of last year, this organization actually not only recovered all of their lost churn, but they actually tripled. I got an email from the founder, I want to say two weeks ago, that said, by the way, Asia, we 3.5x since the last time that you saw us. Uh, a lot of it had to do with your work that you did, in addition to some other things that we did, but overall, a success story and a relief, oh my god. Can you imagine? But that process that we're going to go through is exactly this today. So here's the thing about it, though. Whenever we encounter moments of opportunity, we open up our minds to what is possible in this particular scenario. But when we're encountering stressful moments where we have to grow, there is no choice, we have to grow or else, what ends up happening is we limit what is uh, our purview of what we're actually able to accomplish. And we do what I call deboing our own growth pretty much all the time. If you are not familiar with Debo, uh, I would highly recommend that you watch the movie Friday. It will be an educational experience for you. But deboing your own growth basically means we're robbing our own growth, we're stealing from ourselves, especially when we get into these really stressful moments where we feel like we have to grow and we have to win. Here's a couple of ways that we debo our own growth. The first way is we obsess over the KPIs. We get so focused on the MRR and the revenue that we completely forget about all of the other indicators that show or show the path to what fundamental growth actually looks like. Um, that's not to say that we shouldn't necessarily care about the KPIs, of course we should, but obsessing over the KPIs does not a growth strategy make usually. The second thing that comes up quite often is we end up focusing on lagging indicators. So for example, revenue is actually a great example of that. 
Um, revenue is the lagging indicator of what growth is, but a leading indicator would be how many free trials did we get or how many booked demos did we get? And then from there, even the demo can sometimes be the lagging indicator or the free trial can be the lagging indicator. What are the patterns of behavior that we have executed in order to get us to the free trial or to the demo? This is where focusing on leading indicators makes a lot more sense than focusing on lagging indicators. But again, we do our own growth all the time. We get obsessed with the lagging stuff and never the leading. And then finally, my personal favorite, we look for silver bullets. This has to work or else. There's only one channel. We're looking for that one program. We're looking for that one market. We're looking for that one audience. Yeah, we're looking for that one email to send or that one thing. It's all silver bullet thinking. And it's dangerous because what it does is, again, it limits your ability to be able to see other growth opportunities. And when that happens, we lose our ability to innovate. And then, of course, we also lose our ability to truly troubleshoot the real problem that we're experiencing from a growth perspective. If you're in the market discovery part of the process, maybe you don't have a product quite yet, it's, it can be very much a similar story. Before you've even got your MVP built, you are obsessing over the one channel or the one thing that you're going to do to see success. I'm going to offer that we take a slightly different approach. And it's going to be one that is going to feel really obvious. But at the same exact time, it's going to give us some freedom. And in the event of this particular the client that I worked with way back, I basically proposed, I know everything is looking rough right now, but what if we actually looked at growth in a slightly different way and we tried something different? Some really amazing people I'm going to introduce you to today are Clara Selentrop and Gia Laudi, two really good friends of mine. They are champions of what is called customer-led. Growth ultimately has to come from customers. And what they propose, from a strategic perspective at least, with customer-led growth, what we're doing is we're using our existing customer base or our market base if you don't have customers. We're using our customer base as a way to surface insight and then operationalize around that insight based off of that ideal customer experience. Because if you think about it, your growth has to come from customers. It doesn't matter what you do. It's got to come from someone. And ideally, it's the best paying. So when it comes from identifying your best growth opportunity, and also even your market opportunity, again, if you're really early stage, we need to ultimately start with our ideal customers. It doesn't matter if you raise prices. It doesn't matter if you decide to invest in a new channel. Your customers have to be there. When it comes to monthly recurring revenue, which Rob mentioned earlier, that is uh, the sweet spot for SaaS because we get to charge recurring revenue. It's what every business wants. With recurring revenue, your customer has to say yes to you the first time. Then they have to say yes to you every single month after that, and then every year after that. And they have to continue saying yes. That's, month, that's how monthly recurring revenue works. It has to come from customers. So what we're going to do first is, if we're going to find our absolute best growth opportunities, and if we know that they have to come from customers, then what we're going to do first is we're going to really understand the context upon which our customers buy our solutions. We're then going to map the customer journey. So we're going to make it really crystal clear for ourselves and for our teams, if you have a team, what that ultimate journey is and what it looks like. And then finally, when we have that customer journey based on the context upon which customers buy, we're then going to do a gap analysis. We're going to find the gaps. We're gonna, and then we're going to operationalize around those gaps. 
and spoilers, this is where your ideas are gonna come from. This last stage, you're gonna do a lot of work up leading, to this, leading up to this point. By the time that you get here, it's gonna be magic, I promise. You're gonna get flooded with all these different ideas, and you're gonna have way too many things to implement, and then the fun part becomes all about prioritizing them. But that's where your ideas are gonna come from. Okay, first step. So I mentioned that we need to understand the context upon which our customers buy. How many of you are familiar with jobs to be done? Awesome, okay, we got some hands, okay. For everyone who is familiar with it, this is gonna be a really nice refresher for you guys. For everyone who is unfamiliar, we're gonna do a really quick primer and we're gonna use it to show us how we can understand the context upon which our customers buy our product and our services. So jobs to be done. Jobs to be done is a framework, it's an approach to understanding how and why our customers buy, and specifically the context. So a job is defined as the progress that a person is trying to make in any given circumstance that would cause them to buy a product or a service. And this concept has been defined by a guy named Clayton Christensen. He wrote the book Competing Against Luck, and he breaks down jobs to be done in a way better format and a time frame that I'll be able to explain it here. But the basic concept is everything that we've ever purchased ever has a job. There was something that we were firing, and now we're hiring this new product for. There was something that we ultimately wanted to accomplish by hiring this new product. And there was something that we wanted to overcome or get rid of by firing the old thing. This is true for SaaS. For every single product that we've ever purchased software-wise and also that our customers are buying, there is a job that we're hiring that product for. I'm gonna give you guys an example. Uh, this example is a non-SaaS example, but it'll illustrate what I mean by this. Okay, so. Competing Against Luck, Clayton Christensen, in the book, he, gives, uh, he talks about the milkshake story. And in this particular uh, example, what he talks about is there is like some fast food chain, I actually don't think that he names what the company is, but there's some fast food chain, uh, National, they have recently launched milkshakes. And they've launched their new product to market, and now people are buying milkshakes. Fast forward a few years later, he actually, or the company wants to increase the sales of milkshakes. And so what the company does is they say, okay, great. We're gonna increase the sales of milkshakes. We're gonna do a bunch of research and we're gonna figure out how we can push more milkshakes. So they do the research and they pull a bunch of customers in and they do a lot of focus groups. And they ask questions like, do you like the cherry on top of your milkshake or do you like it without? What are your favorite flavors? Cause we've got chocolate, strawberry, and peach. Do you want anything else? Are there any other flavors that we're missing here? And they start asking questions like, how, do you like the size of the cup? Do you like a dome-shaped lid or like a flat lid? When people hand it to you, do you want the napkin wrapped around the cup? Or do you want the napkin placed under the cup? Or do you want a napkin at all? And they ask a bunch of other questions about the features. What are all the things about the milkshake that you want or that you like or that are missing? And what do you think about all the other guys' milkshakes? How do you feel about these milkshakes over here? So they, get all this, they do all this research and they get all this feedback. And as you can imagine, they have a ton of things to implement and things to try. So what they do is they take all that information and they apply it to their product. And then they roll out all these new feature sets. They make some changes, they introduce their brand new, improved milkshake to the market. And sales were fine. It was like, eh, it was you know, marginal at best. 
It wasn't like mind-blowing growth. It was like, okay, yeah, like it, it did a little bit of did something. So they all go back to the drawing board and they say, okay, what did we miss? We didn't see explosive growth. What happened? And so that's when they bring on Clayton. And then Clayton Christensen says, we asked questions about what they wanted related to the milkshake, but what we didn't ask them was why they hired it in the first place. What were they firing and what was the milkshake replacing? And so then the food chain company goes, oh my God, you're right, we should do it again. So then they do it all over again, except this time they ask different questions. And they ask questions, what were you ultimately choosing the milkshake for? Why were you hiring the milkshake? Why did you select that? And why at that particular time? And what were you comparing it against? And why did you choose this over this? Did you compare it to anything else? What were you thinking as you were going through the process of ordering and selecting and buying this milkshake? What was it doing for you? And they got a ton of different answers, but the one that was the most interesting to them was actually people who were hiring the milkshake as a meal replacement in the morning for breakfast, specifically on their way to work, driving, commuting. So for this particular product, suddenly this milkshake had a different job. The job that it had was it was the perfect item for commuters on the way to work early in the morning to consume. It fit into their hand, it fit into their cup holder. It wasn't messy. They didn't have any like papers or anything that they had to fool around with. They could safely drive and consume this milkshake at ease. On top of that, it would keep them full for most of the day before they actually got to their lunch meal. And uh, there's all kinds of other things. It's tasty, it feels good, sugar, it's great. So now all of a sudden, uh, this food chain says, oh wow, okay, there's this whole job that we completely ignored for this particular product. What if we did marketing campaigns around promoting the fact that people can hire our milkshake for this job? And not only that, but they realized we're not just competing with other milkshakes, we're competing with breakfast items. We're competing with bagels, we're competing with breakfast sandwiches, you name it. This is, these are all the things that we're competing with all of a sudden within this specific context. You can imagine the marketing came, campaigns that came out. It was like, buy the milkshake in the morning, or like, you're a tasty treat, like on your way to work. The healthiest choice? Debatable. <laughs> Probably not the healthiest choice. Uh, and then I, I think six or seven months later, there was a huge health movement that happened in the food industry, and then suddenly buying the milkshake in the morning was no longer a socially acceptable thing, unless you just really wanted to. No judgment here, though. But this is a perfect example of a product that we thought we were competing in one particular context and scenario. But after doing customer audience research, we learn that actually we're not competing with other milkshakes really. We're actually competing with breakfast items. Who would have thought? And yet with customer research, uh, there are still many organizations who do not do customer research, and they absolutely should. But there's plenty of research that indicates why we should do customer research as often as we possibly can. Organizations that do customer research see a 54% greater return on marketing investment. This was a stat that was uncovered by the Aberdeen Group. Another one that they found was customers who do, or teams that do customer research see an 18 times faster average sales cycle. They also see a 3.5 times greater revenue from customer referrals. And then 56% more cross-sell and upsell revenue which Rob also talked about expansion revenue earlier. This is a huge indicator for doing that kind of research to expand. And then my personal favorite stat, this is actually from ProfitWell. Patrick Campbell was mentioned earlier, I think, and this is from his team, but two to three times faster growth for teams that do 10 plus interviews a month. Two to three times, that's substantial. 
But I want to make sure that we don't make customer research too hard, because customer research is one of those things where it's, yeah, but I don't want to bug my customers. I'm bothering them. Uh, they don't have time for me. Who's going to ever want to talk to me? I promise you that if you are solving a real problem for people, they're going to want to talk to you. And it doesn't have to be super complex. All you need, even if you have thousands of customers, all you need are 10 interviews. 10 is the magic number. 10 is the magic number because it's, it's enough to see what your patterns are and what your outliers are. Make sure to ask jobs to be done style questions. If you were to go to Google and just type in, what are some jobs to be done style questions for SaaS? You're going to find plenty of them for free. Do your absolute best not to ask questions about features. It's so tempting, especially as builders and as makers, to want to know what new feature can I add or what new thing can I add that will make this better for you. But for the purpose of finding growth opportunity, we want to make sure that we're asking more about the context upon which they've purchased and what they fired and why they chose our product instead. And then finally, record your interviews. OK, so this is a big one, because a lot of us will get into extremely high-value customer meetings, and we don't record our conversations, because we feel like taking notes is enough. But I'm here to tell you from personal experience, I've run thousands of interviews by this point, recording them is always the best move. And the reason why is because our brains naturally want to condense what we're hearing into a sentence or into a phrase. But customers actually give you lots of context. They give you rich information in these interviews. You want to make sure that you record them. And also, if you have a team, you want to make sure that you're able to distribute that, in, that conversation to the team as well. Because what you hear might actually be different than what your marketer hears, or what your product person hears, or what your salesperson hears. So record your interviews. If it's in person, if you're doing that these days, bring a physical recorder. If it's on Zoom, you can always ask for permission to record. Very low, uh, low barrier to entry here for customer interviews. This is all you need to get started. OK, so we've identified the context upon which our customers buy. We understand our jobs. We probably, if we've gone through this process, we've heard some patterns, and we've identified some reasons why people hire our product. The next step is to build the ultimate customer journey. Build out the map. Map out what that process looked like. What were all the different steps that it took for the customer to not only choose your solution, but actually literally taking all the different steps? What do they do? I'm going to give you guys a very real example. But few teams can answer the question of what the customer was doing right before they did the most important call to action. That could be signing up for a free trial. That could be booking a demo. It could be creating an account. It could be adding to cart. Whatever that most crucial CTA is, what was the customer doing right before that, all the different things leading up to that moment. How many of you have ever chosen a project management software ever in your life? Doesn't have to be for your organization. Yep, OK, most of us. OK, you guys are going to hopefully vibe with this. I'm going to give you an example. It's a very real example, and it's one that we've all probably been through in some kind of way. This actually is based off of a real client project that I did a few years back, based off of the research that we did and also personal experience. I can vouch for what this process looks like. But let's say we were tasked with finding a project management solution. OK, so the first thing we're probably going to go do is we're probably going to hit up Google. And we're going to say, best project management solution. And then we're probably going to add a few qualifiers. Probably going to say, best project management solution for SaaS. Best project management for, uh, solution for consulting firms. Best project management solution for finance. You name it, whatever vertical, whatever it is that you're in. 
you're probably going to go five to six pages deep, real stat. You're not going to settle for the first page because you know that there's tons of project management solutions out there. There's something for everyone these days. And what's going to happen next is, yeah, you're going to see the big guys. Like, you're going to see Asana. You're going to see Trello. You're going to see Basecamp. You're going to read. You're probably going to gloss over a lot of their copy because a lot of it's the same. But then you're going to find niche products, like really specific examples of things that are really interesting to you. And you're like, ooh, this is really interesting. And all the other stuff, you might pay attention to it. You might not. It just depends. But imagine that the next thing that you do is you're actually going to sign up for five to 10 of these solutions. Also, a real, on average, when searching for a PM solution, most people will sign up for five to 10 different platforms. That's five to 10 different SaaS. It's a lot. That's a lot for most <laughs> markets, I feel like. And when you, know, you do that, you're going to get all their emails. You're going to ignore most of them. But you're going to notice them. You're going to say, oh, OK, yeah, like, Asana is sending me like 10 a day. Cool. And then the ones that are really compelling, you're going to keep note of mentally and emotionally. To make sure that we're doing our due diligence, we're probably going to go to Captera or G2 Crowd or Trustpilot. And we're going we're gonna to look at the really awesome reviews, like the five-star amazing ones. And then we're going to look at the trash reviews. Give me the one-star. I want to know what people are struggling with when it comes to these softwares. This is going to help me decide and suss out the ones that I think are maybe less ideal and also the ones that are best ideal for me and my needs. To make sure we're really covering our bases, we're probably going to ask a friend. <laughs> we're going to say, hey, what are you guys using? I'm this kind of company. What are, you, like, what are other companies like me using when it comes to project management? We've got one example here, the real life example, someone posting this in a Facebook group. And I think, what does it say, 43 or something comments, responses? of people letting others know, oh, we're using this, we're using this. And then another one for me, actually, because I was really curious about what other SaaS founders were using. We are a Notion team. We are run at this point by Notion. But I was very curious about what other companies were using. And I got all kinds of different answers. We just covered six to seven channels. I don't know if you guys were counting. But between email, Captera, social media, Google search, you might have seen Google ads up there. And also the in-app experience, we didn't cover that. But just what we covered and what we talked about, six to seven channels. That's a lot of channels. And this is for a very competitive market. But you can imagine for your own SaaS products what the journey actually looks like for someone trying to find your solution, sign up for it, try it, and experience it. We didn't cover what the in-app or in-person, if you have a physical product, we didn't cover what the in-app or in-person experience looked like. But that's a whole other ball game, right? What buttons are they clicking? What places are they going? What are they evaluating? We also didn't cover what triggered us in the first place. Why were we searching for a solution? We didn't talk about that. But that's really more to illustrate that there's a huge aspect of the journey that might be unknown to us. And we need to understand that of course, by doing customer research, and then also map it out. What does it look like? This was a, an example of me mapping out one part of the customer journey for finding and selecting and choosing a project management solution. But again, you can imagine for your own solutions, whether in existence or not, what are the steps that people are taking? And what are they experiencing? And what are they comparing? This is what we need to understand and then also document. When you know the full journey, you can get into your customer's shoes. If you were feeling anxiety while I was describing this project management process, 
You can imagine what customers must feel like when choosing any solution. And the anxiety, of course, is the stressful part. But imagine the elation when you find something that's for you, and you're like, yes, I'm going to use Notion. I'm going to use the crap out of it. It's going to be awesome. We got to know that journey. And the reason why we want to know that journey is because when we know the journey, we can build empathy. Empathy is the secret here to any kind of go-to-market marketing growth activity. Because when you can empathize with what your customer is going through, you can start to identify some areas where you can improve and also some things where uh, you're actually excelling at and are doing really great at. And if you have thousands of customers, hundreds of customers, your different customer segments likely have different journeys. It's really important if you have a large customer base to understand that and to know that. If you're assuming that every customer has the same exact journey, you actually might be missing opportunities there in and of itself, just easily. But generally speaking, usually different customer segments have different journeys. When I talk about mapping the journey, just like customer uh, research, I want to make sure this is approachable. If you research customer journey mapping, you're going to see some really extravagant, really detailed, beautiful examples of what a customer journey map can look like. However, I actually want to pare this back a little bit and make journey mapping way more approachable than what we might see. So instead, I'm going to give you the really simple framework for mapping the journey. You really need, you need three big sections. You need the before, the customer was choosing and selecting your product. You need the during. So what were they, do, what the, what were they doing during the process of choosing your, the software? And then after. So after they became a customer, what happened after that? Because the journey doesn't end there. If we're in SaaS, if we're in MRR, we care about retention a lot, actually. That's how we grow. Good retention usually indicates um, a good platform or base for growth. So we want the before, the during, and the after. The before times, the during times, and the after times. And before, during, and after, we've got a horizontal map here. We're then going to go vertical. What are they doing? What are they thinking? And what are they feeling as they go through the process of finding, choosing, and selecting your product? Doing includes activity related to your marketing and your product. It also includes activity not related to it. So for example, things that you might not necessarily control, comparing against other solutions, or potentially going to Captera, or things like that. The stages that you use to indicate how the customer moves along the journey doesn't really, like there's no one perfect framework to rule them all here. You're going to use stages that make sense to you and your team that dictate the customer experience itself. And then finally, this is a really crucial one, and we're going to unpack this one. But we want specific KPIs for every stage of the customer journey. However, these aren't business KPIs. These aren't KPIs that indicate our success. They are KPIs that indicate their customer's success. And we'll talk about that mindset shift in our actual last step. But just to show you an example, because like I said, there's plenty of customer journey maps out there. This is a real customer journey map from a real client. So real, I had to blur out the name. But it doesn't have to be super crazy. So in this particular journey map, we have in our big sections of the blue, the yellow, and the pink at the top, our before, our during, and our after. And then in each of the stages along the way, these are stages that we've defined that we felt best represented what the customer was actually going through. And then we have our doing in this uh, white box at the top. And then what are they thinking in the white boxes at the bottom? 
and then emojis for feeling. Simple. Doesn't have to be super intense, doesn't have to be super crazy. You can do this in Excel, spreadsheet, uh, Google Sheets. You don't have to necessarily get a designer. You can actually map the journey very easily and have it be so clear that anyone can read this uh, on your team and understand and start to build empathy and start to say, oh man. The quotes at the bottom here are real voice of customer quotes. Those are from real interviews that we've done. And this map helps us start to identify the gaps, which is what we're gonna talk about next. Okay, this is the final step. Are our brains ready? <laughs> this is a big one. <laughs> so finding the gaps, we've done our research, we've talked to customers, we've heard some jobs, and we've identified a main job across our entire customer base. And if you don't have customers, what you're probably doing instead is you're researching your market opportunity, which means that these are your prospects. And now that there's a prospect job we've identified, there's a problem that we've identified that we want to solve. Either way, this is where it gets interesting because now we get to map the journey and now we get to do the gap analysis of what that customer journey is and where are we best meeting needs versus not. Where are our opportunities for growth based off of what the customer is currently experiencing and what we're currently dropping down? This is where we get to identify the, that place. A simple way to think about this is actually the North Star metric. So Rob actually mentioned earlier the value metric. The North Star KPI or the North Star metric is a really similar concept, many of which, one of which you might actually already be familiar with. But the North Star KPI, lovingly coined by Sean Ellis, author of Hacking Growth, another incredible read, highly recommend. But the North Star KPI basically says that this is the single most metric that captures and defines the value that a customer gets from using your product. So it's specifically the value that the customer gets from using the product. It's not booking a demo, it's not signing up for a free trial, it's probably something really specific to the product itself and how they realize and achieve value. It's something that helps them. And it's something that they have to do in your product in order to experience that value. The North Star KPI could be your value metric. So when we talk about pricing and we think about pricing, it could be your value metric. However, it could also be different. Uh, a shortcut would be to use your value metric and ask yourself if that is your North Star KPI. But it doesn't necessarily have to be. It could actually be something different based off of what you hear from customers. I'm going to give you guys an example of a North Star KPI. So back in the day, Breather was a, and I think still is actually, an organization that focused on selling meeting rooms basically on demand. So think like Airbnb, but not stays, more like conference rooms and meeting rooms. And you can, as a business, book as many as you need on demand in any city. And back in the day, Julian, the CEO of Breather at the time, was experiencing an incredibly challenging time. I think that they had six months of runway, something crazy. It was pretty much like, we got to figure it out in six months or you know, it's not looking good, guys. And so what he did was he booked a bunch of meetings with a bunch of different CEOs and he said, okay, here's what I'm going through, here's what I'm experiencing. We've got six months left to live, what should we do? And one particular CEO said, all you have to do, Julian, is pick a number and focus on growing it 8% week over week. And Julian was just like, I can't, sorry, no, it can't, it can't be that easy. Uh, and he was like, well, it's not, but, but, but that's how you do it. And he was like, well, how do I actually figure out how to grow that number? Like, how do I actually do the thing? Like, how, so what do I do to get the 8% week over week? 
And he said, ah, that's where you're going to figure it out. <laughs> that's where the magic happens. The magic happens in that container, in that space. But what that CEO gave Julian was actually a Northstar KPI. So what he said was, Julian, what is your Northstar KPI? What's the one thing that you can measure against that if you increase, you're going to have to grow? There's no other way. If you focus on the Northstar KPI, you have to grow because we're growing the Northstar KPI. In Breather's case, it was the number of booked hours. That was their Northstar KPI. That was the single most important customer value metric, at least in this particular scenario, where a customer receives value when they book a meeting hour. Your product probably has a North Star KPI somewhere in that journey, in that place. And that KPI, if you were to think about expanding that a million times over, what kind of growth would you experience or achieve? And also, what's blocking the customer from doing that thing? That's where, again, we get to that really magical space. So we're actually going to use our journey stages. Going back to our customer journey map, we're going to use the journey stages to determine KPIs for the customer's success. When we think about our North Star KPI in our product, and we think about the journey that the customer goes through to experience and realize value from our product, how can we have that happen more? How can we have that happen more often? And how can we have that happen to begin with in the first place for more people at any given time? This is the basis for acquisition, activation, and retention. So I'm going to go back to my customer journey map that I showed you guys earlier. I'm going to give you some real examples of real KPIs that are based on the customer's success and not necessarily our success. It's so easy and tempting to say, OK, it's definitely traffic. It's, it's free trials. And then it's just customers. And then question mark, and then profit. Instead, we're actually going to focus on, again, customer success, which is a little bit different. This is a real example. In our green stage here, we know when a customer experiences first value in this example uh, when they've run the very first search in the product for the very first time. So this is a customer behavior. This isn't necessarily a I signed up or a I visited or I did a thing. It's a, well, for this particular product and for this particular journey, they experience value here. This is where we see it. We heard that in customer interviews, and therefore it became a customer KPI. Another example, so in order to progress along the journey, this particular uh, customer journey and for this particular product, in order for a customer to become newly engaged, so they've achieved first value, now in order to become newly engaged, they've got to run three more searches, and they also have to do two more things. They've got to visit the pricing page, either in-app or on the website, and they have to create their very first list in the product. These are two specific product activities or behaviors, and then also a little bit of a marketing behavior. We want them to look at the pricing page that tells us that they have achieved or they are considering, they're in consideration phase. Again, this is just an example of what a KPI could look like. Uh, when they are super engaged, so we know that they've become a customer, not just when they enter in their credit card, but we know that they are truly engaged as a customer when they do this. They've run 25 plus searches in the product per month, and they've added at least one new team member to the account. Uh, again, this was based off of our customer research and also the journey that we identified. But this is another example of based off of customer success. And finally, we can tell when a customer has expanded and they've become expansion revenue, where one customer has maybe become five customers. Or excuse me, sorry, not expansion revenue, referral revenue. My apologies. We can tell that this happened because they've probably been a customer for at least six months and they've left either a positive review or they've sent a positive NPS score, et cetera, et cetera.
for this particular product, which I just am realizing now I did not give you any context for, so my apologies. <laughs> but for this particular product, the North Star KPI was the number of monthly searches. It was impossible for this business to grow if, if people did not do more searches per month. If they did more searches, this company was going to grow. If they did not do searches at all, then they weren't converting anyone. If they weren't doing enough searches, they probably weren't upgrading, that kind of thing. So when you think about your customer journey and you think about what's your North Star KPI, what is the gap that customers have to cross today in order to best achieve that? And depending on what kind of business you have and where you're at in your growth journey, you might find that there's actually a couple of places for opportunities for growth. It might be that you need to focus on uh, making sure that when people hit your website, they are converting into that very first call to action. It could also be that you need to build awareness. People aren't finding you in the first place. If you were a project management solution, for example, and you weren't in the first two to three pages of Google, are people finding you? This is where you start thinking about what's preventing people or blocking people from achieving success. It could be they don't know about you yet, and this is a gap we have to close. And so now we get to do the really fun work of identifying, okay, well, what are the ways that we can do that? This is, the fun, this is the fun stage. By this point, you've done all the hard work, and you've gotten to the place to now where you get to identify and close the gaps. These are some questions that you can ask yourselves or your team if you have a team. You can ask questions like, what information would someone need to make a decision? You can also ask questions like, what are the questions that are unanswered that your prospects have about your solution? You'd be able to identify this, of course, during the customer research process. But when you get answers to these questions, you start getting all the tactical ideas. Man, we need to expand our website, or we need to run new campaigns, or, oh my gosh, our onboarding experience needs to be completely overhauled. Like, we need to do completely different stuff. But this is where you start getting those growth ideas. And because you've done all this hard work, it's impossible for you to fail at this point because you've already validated it with your customers, and you've also already validated it with your current growth experience and what that customer experience actually looks like. So just to wrap up, how we win. We're going to interview customers using jobs to be done. We're going to do our absolute best to record these interviews, and we're going to make sure that we ask jobs to be done style questions. And then we're going to map the customer journey. So we're going to hear patterns about behavior, and we want to make sure that we document that behavior. And then finally, we're going to find the gaps. What the customer is doing and what we're currently putting out there is there alignment, or are there gaps? And what gaps need to be closed? And how best do we close those gaps? This is where the magic happens and the growth opportunities come. We have time for a couple questions. Cool. The question was, how do you incentivize customers to talk to them? This is going to be, this might be, this might not be shocking, actually. You're not going <laughs> to. What you're going to do is you're going to say, um, you're going to send them an email, and you're going to be like, hey, we would love to best understand how customers like you look for solutions like ours and why you ultimately chose us. And we would love to spend 30 to 45 minutes with you and just hear your feedback and get your, get your thoughts. You're going to be shocked at how many people say, yes, absolutely, would love to in a heartbeat. You're not going to offer them a gift card. You're not going to offer them a free month. Do not offer them a free month, actually. I would be very upset with you. Don't give them anything for free. Just see what you get, offering absolutely nothing. If you find you're getting zero, then maybe consider offering an incentive, but try it actually without it. The reason why we don't want to offer an incentive is because when you get people who 
want something, they might not give you the most transparent feedback. So that's the only reason why we wouldn't do that. If you are B2C, because there's always exceptions to the rule, you might have to offer an incentive if you're B2C, if you've got thousands of customers. But nine times out of 10, you don't, is what my experience has been. I've worked with, I think, I'm up in the 50s at this point, 50, 50 different kinds of SaaS companies all over the world. We've only ever had to incentivize one time, just for context. So you don't, yeah. What else? The next question is, what happened to the vacation rental software company you talked about at the beginning? I'm so glad you asked that question. Yes, okay. So that particular vacation rental software company, the one that was like 60 to 80% churn at the beginning of a talk, there were three things that we identified. In our customer research, we identified that, well, the, the market was extremely competitive. In fact, so competitive that our product was like number three on their list. Like they would go to the first competitor, try it out, get really upset and frustrated, then go to the second one, get really upset and frustrated, and then get to ours and be like, oh, where have you been all my life? What we identified was, this is gonna sound so wild, but it was because our, quote, marketing was not pretty enough. It wasn't shiny enough. The competitors had better marketing. Their websites were prettier, their graphics were prettier. It just looked nicer, like I wanted to actually use it. And then you got to our website and it looked, I'm gonna be nice, but it just didn't look quality. And so that was the first gap was, we need a website overhaul and we need a brand overhaul. Second gap that we identified was onboarding. It took way too long for customers to get to the aha moment. For vacation rental software, their aha moment was specifically, I connected to Airbnb and I was able to, I was able to distribute my listings and everything synced perfectly. But on the onboarding process, we made it really difficult for people to, to get to that moment because a lot of people wanted to just come in and just see but we were forcing them through a process that they might not have been ready for at the time. So what we did instead was we actually, we gave them, you might have seen this before in SaaS, but when people signed up, instead they just saw what life could be like and then encouraged them to connect to Airbnb later, but only after showing them what life could have been like. And that was a second aha moment. And then the third thing actually had to do with, so we talked about brand, we talked about onboarding. Oh, it was our pricing plans. So we identified, as to Rob's credit here, we identified that the absolute best paying customers were the ones who absolutely paid more. When we isolated that particular cohort and we just focused on those people, they were saying things like, this particular product is extremely quality. I, I can depend on it. It's like my foundation for my vacation rental business. And we actually use that as messaging in our positioning. So now our positioning is really much more around acquiring those like really high quality like companies that are gonna pay more, but then also admire and respect the fact that this is a really legit product. And you're not like, once you use us, you're not gonna go anywhere else. When we adjusted our messaging that way, we also saw like a huge lift in attracting like those larger, higher paying customers. So that was another big aspect of it as well. So yeah, those are three very big gaps. That was acquisition, activation, and a little bit of retention as well. Thanks so much for joining me this week. If you enjoyed that talk by Asia, you should hit her up on Twitter. She's Asia Orangio, O-R-A-N-G-I-O. And I'm at Rob Walling on Twitter. Let's connect. Final reminder that this is the last chance to get tickets for MicroConf Remote at microconfremote.com. Thanks for hanging out with me again this week. And I'll be back in your earbuds again next week with a MicroConf on air live stream. And then the week after that, we'll have another MicroConf refresh episode. Talk to you then.